Cynthia Orchard is a human rights lawyer, researcher and policy expert with interests in migration, refugee issues, statelessness and development. I met Cynthia when we both worked as an immigration and asylum lawyers at the Immigration Advisory Service here in London. Cynthia has approximately 15 years experience in the human rights sector and has had an incredibly rich and varied career to date. She has held positions at the Immigration Advisory Service, the UN High Commissioner for Refugees, Redress, the Refugee Studies Centre and Asylum Aid. Her international experience extends to development work in El Salvador, Kazakhstan and the Ivory Coast, and she currently lives in Thailand. Cynthia has a degree in political science from the University of California, a JD from the University of Virginia School of Law, and an MST in international human rights law from the University of Oxford. We will, I'm sure, hear more from Cynthia about her interesting career shortly, but for now, Welcome, Cynthia, to The Passion Factor, Pursuing a Career in Human Rights. Thank you very much, Vicky. It's a pleasure to join you. So the first sort of question that I always throw out at my guests is, is where did it all start for you? What motivated you to work in the human rights field? Right. Thank you. Um, Well, I grew up in Kentucky and my dad was a professor of history and politics And I think that his career contributed to my interest in politics, law, and development, because I had a lot of conversations with him Mm -hmm. as a teenager about politics and governance. And then at university, I became interested in, in human rights even more, and I did my final year thesis on human rights and the impact of USAID to El Salvador focusing on the civil war years, which had ended um, while I was at university. Um, And so it was a very recent and uh, very tragic situation in El Salvador. um, And I was really drawn into that um, and wanted to continue working on human rights issues. But that was that was really the beginning. That's where it started. Yeah, I think there's always one moment, isn't there, that sort of it it, it sparks our interest and then we go from there. And I've given a very short pricey in in the introduction there of of your really interesting career, but perhaps you can sort of walk us through it in a bit more detail, sort of what has been your own career path to date to to where you are now. Well, this bit is a bit of a long story, so bear with me and and do stop me if I go on too much. No, it'd be interesting for Um, our listeners. It's really interesting for people to, to share their full story. Yeah, so after I finished um, university, I applied to serve with the Peace Corps, um, and I was sent to Ivory Coast, West Africa, and I lived in a mud hut in a small village, so in some ways, the kind of typical um, uh, or stereotypical Peace Corps experience, Um, and while I was there, I learned a lot about the local culture. And my main role was to teach local people about health and hygiene issues, uh, quite basic issues. Um, And I managed a few um, small health and education projects. And that was quite an amazing experience, which really opened my eyes to the challenges uh, and the lack of opportunity um, that people living in real poverty experience. Um, And after Peace Corps, I went back to the U.S. and I went to law school and um, 
while I was there, I explored in more detail my interest in human rights law and development issues. Um, and I did a, a year-long module with a refugee law clinic. Um, and I, through that clinic, I helped a Congolese woman um, to obtain re refugee status in the U.S., and in my final two years of law school, I also volunteered with the International Rescue Committee, um, helping Kosovan refugees um, who had been resettled to the UK to change their temporary status to um, permanent residency in the US. Um, and then after that, I moved to the UK to be with my husband, who is English um, and who was working on a graduate program at the time. Um, and then my first real proper job in the UK was working with the Immigration Advisory Service in London, where I met you. Mm -hmm. um, and as I'm sure you know, that it was um, not a lot of training uh, provided uh, at the Immigration Advisory Service. And for me, it was a real, there were a couple of weeks of training at the beginning. And then it was a real learning curve for me because I was working in a new jurisdiction in a new country. Um, but it was really, really interesting work, um, and I was able to help many of my clients, and I had some really fantastic colleagues. So overall, it was quite a good experience for me. But after about five years of um, doing that work for uh, a variety of reasons, I was ready for a change. Um, the uh, organization was facing some financial and institutional challenges, um, but I had also had my first child um, while I worked there. And although I went back to work after six months of maternity leave, I really wanted to be able to spend a little bit more time with my daughter while she was very young. Um, and childcare in London was and still is incredibly expensive for people who work for a charity. Um, and my husband was just starting his teaching career. So financially, it didn't make a lot of sense for us to live in London. Um, so we decided to uh, leave the UK for a while. And really the first opportunity that we both liked was that my husband was offered a job teaching at an international school in El Salvador. Uh, and because I had worked on, um, on my thesis on El Salvador and wanted to go there when I was um, in an undergraduate, when he was offered that job, I was like, yes, let's do it. Um, so we went to El Salvador. Um, and after about a year, I started uh, volunteering with an NGO that works on social justice and development issues called the Center for Exchange and Solidarity. And it is still, um, in my opinion, one of the most wonderful organizations um, that exists. It's a real grassroots organization and it helps people who are living in the most difficult circumstances. Um, and my, my role was quite small. Initially, I volunteered as an English language teacher and helped a little bit with fundraising. Um, and then I worked for about a year with their election observation mission. Um, and it was quite an interesting time politically there because it was the first time that a liberal candidate was actually elected um, to the presidency of the country and took office. And so it was a real um, sea change in Salvadoran politics while, while I was there. And I was really privileged to be part of the election observation team that, uh, during those elections. 
after that experience, uh, I took another uh, break from my career. I had another child. Um, and by that time, we'd been in El Salvador for about um, three years, and we were feeling like we were kind of ready for a change. Uh, so we started looking around for other options and my husband uh, again got a job with an international school but in a totally different part of the world in Kazakhstan and we knew absolutely nothing about Kazakhstan um, but it seemed like quite an interesting opportunity to explore another part of the world and um, quite a good um, opportunity for him professionally um, and I wasn't quite ready to go back to work. My, our child was was one, our younger child was one when we left El Salvador and went to Kazakhstan. And I wanted to spend a little bit more time with, with our baby. Um, so we moved to Kazakhstan. I spent some time learning Russian, um, which never advanced to a very high level, but um, enough to get by. Um, and I spent some a bit of time tutoring and consulting and volunteering and then I decided to um, do a master's degree in international human rights law uh, at the University of Oxford and um, that program was designed for working professionals uh, from around the world and it operated mostly remotely uh, so I did most of it while we were living in Kazakhstan with two summers in Oxford uh, where we did very intensive um, courses and exams. Um, and I met really uh, quite amazing people working in human rights in, in all different types of human rights careers around the world. Um, so it was really great for the, the people I met on, on that course. And then following that, I did some more consulting, um, mainly working remotely um, with the Refugee Studies Center, um, with the Palestinian NGO called Badil, um, and with an anti-torture organization based in London called Redress. Um, after four years in Kazakhstan, we decided to move back to London, and I was fortunate to get a job working on refugee protection issues with UNHCR's London office. Uh, I worked there um, for about seven months on a temporary contract, and then I got a job with Asylum Aid, a charity based in London, um, where I worked mainly on statelessness policy and training issues initially, um, and also on um, asylum policy issues relating to um, sexual and gender identity. Um, and then in this kind of two years into my um, work with Asylum Aid, my role changed a bit um, and I continued working on statelessness um, and added working uh, as a legal advisor and coordinating a pro bono project with corporate law firms um, to enable us to work on more statelessness cases. Um, but unfortunately, Asylum Aid was uh, facing some quite serious financial and organizational challenges. Um, and by uh, the beginning of 2020, those organizational issues um, were coming to a crisis point. The organization had changed its name and it was known as Consonant by that point. Um, and sadly, um, around the time that we were just entering an emergency fundraising period and had issued a, 
a public emergency fundraising appeal, the pandemic hit. And the pandemic made it very difficult for us to fundraise adequately to save the organization. And so my my role um, was coming to an end because the organization was um, for months quite likely to go into administration. Um, but I was also put on furlough um, during the pandemic because um, the organization had to cut back on expenses, but also uh, it was impossible for me to do my job because I had children at home who were not in school and needed me at home. And my husband was a teacher, so he was a key worker, so he needed to carry on doing his job. Um, so we had some some issues ar that arose directly from the pandemic, but also um, there were a lot of other complicating factors. And all around this time, um, my husband had been working in a, a state school in East London and um, had become unhappy with his job long before the pandemic hit uh, and had started looking for other alternatives. And the one that seemed the most appealing was he was offered a job in Bangkok with an international school. Um, and then, so he had been offered and accepted that job um, just before the pandemic happened. And um, and then we were kind of in limbo for months because um, I was pretty sure that my job was coming to an end. He had been offered a new job in, in Bangkok, but we couldn't travel yet. And the, the Thai government had uh, put a hold on commercial flights into Thailand. Um, and we didn't know when that would change. Um, but fortunately, it changed in August 2020. And we were able to get on a flight and get here and have settled in. And I was quite lucky to be offered a temporary role working remotely with UNHCR's London office in the same role that I had worked in, in previously. Um, but it was it was temporary for a few months um, and it ended in December. Um, so I am currently um, looking at doing more consulting work. And in fact, I am starting a new job uh, as a consultant tomorrow. Um, with an NGO in London called Mythoria, um, working on a project called Last Rights, um, which um, promotes the rights of migrants who have died or who have gone missing um, after leaving their home country, uh, as well as the rights of their family members. Um, and I'm really looking forward to uh, taking on this um quite important work that is very much um, underexplored in general and, and deserves a lot more attention. Um, so that's uh, it in a, a, a kind of very short summary. Um, and at the moment, I'm, I'm starting this new role tomorrow. Um, and then I, I don't know what I'll be doing in a couple of months time, but I'm quite interested to find out. Um, and I've, I've got lots of ideas. I, I really like working on statelessness and it's quite possible that I may return to working on that in the future. Um, I'm also quite interested in the issues uh, relating to the rights of migrant workers in Asia in particular. Um, and it would be nice to work on issues that are particularly prevalent in the area in which I live at the moment. Um, and I'm also quite interested in teaching um, human rights law. So if there's an opportunity for me to do that, I'll be very interested.
Um, and I'm thinking about writing a, a fantasy novel. So things might take a, a very interesting turn if, if that ever happens. Wow, gosh. Well, thank you for sharing what is a really interesting career that's taken you really all over the world and in so many different roles and and you know I'm sure from each role you've picked up lots of different experiences and and um, met different different people and it kind of brings me me neatly on to my sort of next set of questions which is around working and, and breaking into the sector as you know this podcast is for, for young professionals new graduates who are looking to work in the human rights sector and from all your your jobs and and the, and and the posts that you've had. In your view, what what skills and qualities do you think you need to work um, in the human rights field? There are a lot of really helpful skills and qualities. Um, a few that spring to mind are dedication, uh, integrity, patience, and attention to detail. Um, mm. If you're not dedicated to working with uh, to protect people from human rights abuses. Um, this is not the field for you. You really need passion and dedication to do it well. Um, and although that passion and dedication is really important, you also need to be able to see not only the big picture, um, but the detail. And a lot of our work requires really meticulous attention to detail and quite painstaking work to document human rights abuses or just to document someone's life story to show that they are who they say they are, they've experienced what they say they've experienced. Um, so that level of detail is really important in some of our work. Um, you also need to have integrity so that um, you can do your job well and you can build trust both with your colleagues and with clients and other people that you serve. Um, that's incredibly important in this field. Uh, and you need patience because an awful lot of our work takes years, many years to reach fruition and you have to be in it for the long haul. That's right. Exactly. I, I agree with you on, on, on all of those. I think sort of, that dedication passion point is is vital if we don't have that then you know we, we're lost really that that it's so central to, to what we do um but the other points you raise as well are, are really important and sort of you've mentioned it before and, and certainly in, in your career you, you've gone on to do further study and we see that many human rights employers now be it international non-governmental organizations or domestic ones um intergovernmental organizations such as the UN that many are now asking for some sort of advanced degree in human rights um, or public international law or of that ilk. And, um, I wonder what you think about that, whether it is worth having an advanced degree, important, necessary? I, I don't think that having an advanced degree is always necessary. And I I am definitely don't think that one particular degree mm -hmm. is more important or more valuable than another. I think you can study law, you can study development, you can study anthropology. There are so many things that come into this area of work. Yeah. Um, but I think for me, it was really helpful to do a master's degree after I'd had a, uh, some experience in my career and after taking a career break um, for kind of three reasons, probably it allowed me to refresh and deepen my substantive knowledge after taking some time off with my children. Um, it also gave me more confidence to move into policy and advocacy work um, when I had worked previously more as a legal representative 
on on cases um, rather than the bigger picture. Um, and it also gave me really helpful connections. And I know that you know that having connections in this field is really, really important. And it, it certainly has been for me. And as I mentioned before, I met some really wonderful people who work in human rights around the world. And I wouldn't trade that for anything. Mm-hmm. And when do you think is the best time if somebody is choosing to do a master's degree? When do you think is the best time for them to do it? I think it depends on the person and their circumstances. For me, it worked better to do a master's after having worked in a professional environment for a few years. Um, And I think in general, it's often helpful to do an advanced degree after you've gotten some real world experience because it helps you to have a better understanding of what you want to focus on and then your studies are more meaningful. But for some people, going straight on to an advanced degree after undergraduate work is the right decision. It it might mean that it might be that they don't have an immediate opportunity after undergraduate studies. And so continuing their studies might seem like the only good option. Um, Or it just it might be that they already know what they want to focus on. And so they're quite um, dedicated to a particular topic and they want to know more about it and, and focus on that field. And, and it, so I, re, I think it really depends on the person. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I'm sure you've sat on the other side of the table recruiting for um, individuals, for organizations um, that you've worked for. So in your view, what, what are your, um, what do you think makes a good quote unquote sort of human rights CV and how can students stand out from the crowd and make sure that their application is is noticed because there's so much competition out there for for positions so it's important that you make a good first impression in terms of your CV and and cover letter. Yeah definitely I have been involved in in hiring a Mm. few people and and um, in particular uh, and and then mentoring and training um, junior colleagues and and volunteers and I, I think the there are a few things. One, you've got to get the basics right. So you can't have um, typos and, and grammatical errors in your CV. It's just a red flag for me. Um, and then beyond that really basic criteria, it's I think it's really helpful to not just describe responsibilities that you held, but also to try to show the impact that you've had. And even if it's a, a fairly entry-level role, you can still show that you've had some impact. Um, So for example, as a Peace Corps volunteer, I worked with local people to build latrines at two primary schools and teach children about illnesses linked to poor hygiene. And that's a descriptive way of telling what I did as a Peace Corps volunteer. But then if I want to really impress, I would say this I would show the impact that this contributed to improving the health of approximately 200 children. Um, and I think that it, to the extent that you can show in your CV that you your work has had an impact and that you understand what that impact was, that's really attractive to a lot of employers. Yeah, no, absolutely. That's what I'm always advising people that, you know, to go, go beyond just a descriptive and what your particular role was as well. So, you know, highlighting your particular role there. And yes, beyond the impact point is really important too. Something that you mentioned earlier, just a moment before, was was this whole piece around networking. And we know that networking is important in any sector. And I wonder how networking has helped you in your career there and equally any 
tips or advice that you can offer for our listeners who may find networking difficult, counterintuitive, you're just starting out and it's a bit difficult, you know, it's a bit awkward to, to contact somebody that you don't necessarily know and, and reach out to them. So what would you what would you sort of share about the networking piece? Yeah, sure. I think it is really important. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes too important, but <laughs> um, I I've I've stayed in touch with a lot of my former colleagues on and off, and um, partly just because I I like keeping in touch with people. I relationships are really important mm-hmm. to me, um, but it's also been it's really paid off for professional reasons. On at least three occasions, it's contributed to me um, getting a job, not necessarily because of any kind of nepotism, um, but because I wouldn't have even known about these particular jobs um, being on offer if a colleague or a friend hadn't said, oh, I saw this, I think it might be interesting to you. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think it's it's really helpful to stay in touch with people and um, let them know if you're looking for work um, and, and let them know what you're looking for, what you're hoping for. Um, so I, I guess my top tips are stay in touch with people and um, don't be afraid to ask for help and let people know that, that you need help, um, but also do your homework. So if you're looking for a job in a particular field and you want to ask someone in that field to talk to you, um, find out about them and their work before you contact them so that you're not coming in completely blind. Yeah. Um, and then the other thing that's really important is um, when you do get a job, treat people with respect, be nice to your colleagues, do your job well, um, and people will want, will want to help you. Um, because I think there are so many people in our field who understand how hard it is to make your way um, in this area of work. Um, and and a lot, there are so many people who are perfectly willing to help where they can. So don't be afraid to ask for it. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that, I think that's such an important point there. And, and, you know, you can ask for help at different points in your career, right? As you're starting out, then maybe when you're sort of mid-career and you're looking at transitioning to, to another role, et cetera. So I think, you know, that there is no there's no sort of harm in, in contacting people and asking for that sort of helping hand yep absolutely um and for our listeners who are you know starting out and thinking about well, where where do i go what about the value of undertaking voluntary or pro bono opportunities as a very first step into the sector to learn about a particular area maybe or a type of work that you're doing be it policy work be it campaigning work um, what do you think about the value of, of that, um, of those opportunities? Uh, yeah, volunteer work has mm-hmm. been a really useful and interesting part of my career. Um, and I I highly recommend it to people who have the resources to do it. And mm-hmm. I've been quite fortunate in my career that I, I've had times when I've been in the privileged position of, of being able to volunteer. Um, but I also feel that human rights organizations need to build into their working models ways for people from poor backgrounds, Mm -hmm. um, and especially for people from the communities affected by human rights abuses um, on the issues on which those organizations work. Um, The organizations need to make it possible for those people to get started working in this field and to offer bursaries and paid training programs and internships so that... um, it, it's not a, a very skewed 
core of people who are working in this field and that uh, there really are um, equal opportunities for other people to get involved. Yeah. And that conversation I think is, is happening more and more now that NGOs and, and other organizations are thinking about that sort of um, paying interns and others for their work of equal value and equal importance to that organization. So they should be duly, that should be duly reflected um, accordingly. Yeah, definitely. So moving to sort of, the, the day-to-day life of a human rights professional. Um, could you sort of describe for us a, a typical day in your most recent role or something that, that, that would be interesting for our listeners to hear about, you know, what happens in a day-to-day life um, in the human rights sector? Sure. Um, so in my most recent role, I was working from home and I was working remotely. Um, so my colleagues were in a, in different time zones, um, which has some challenges. Um, and it's really important to be organized with your time when you're working in that type of situation. Um, some of the things I did on a regular basis um, included um, doing research about a particular topic, um, reviewing and commenting on training materials or policy documents, um, lots of reviewing and responding to emails, um, and often having online meetings um, with internal or external colleagues to discuss our work. Um, and I actually found working remotely in a different time zone, not too difficult. It has some challenges, but it it went very well. And um, I'm just incredibly grateful for modern technology that allowed me to do that and will continue to allow me to do that because um, it enables me to live in in a different country and continue hopefully continue my career um, working with some of the same people I worked with in the UK. Um, and, and so it's quite useful in that way. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think the world is, is well, has had to change, obviously, with the pandemic. We've had to sort of move to this new remote life, but it's actually shown the possibilities of how we can work all over the world, but being yes. based in one place. So I think there's, there's definitely value in that. Yes. Thinking about your career, which has been just so interesting and so diverse, what have been the highlight or maybe there have been a couple of highlights of your career to date? <laughs> I would say I, I couldn't pinpoint really a single moment mm. or moments, but I think the things that have been most important to me have been the times when I've worked on a case that has succeeded and I've been able to tell a client that their application or their appeal was successful. And mm. um, that's there's nothing so wonderful as being able to tell someone that, they won. Um, And it's a completely life changing experience for them to have um, been granted asylum or um, leave to remain in the UK as a stateless person. Um, It's just, it's such a, a, an amazing thing for them and for the person who helps them. Um, So that's one part of it. And then the other, I think one of the other things that I really have enjoyed about my work um, has been running workshops and training sessions. Um, Not one in particular, but I just, I really enjoy um, sharing what I've learned and helping other people to deepen their knowledge and bring people together to learn from each other. Um, And I find that really, um, really powerful. Um, And, and there've been some, some really great moments doing um, training sessions and webinars. 
Um, in the most recent webinar I facilitated, I did a brief Q&A as part of the webinar with a stateless person who was speaking publicly for the first time in his life um, to advocate for changes to the way the Home Office deal with statelessness applications. And it was just really fantastic to collaborate with him to help him speak in a very compelling way about the changes that he would most like to see. Um, so that was definitely a, a recent highlight. Um, and I, I hope I'll get to do more of that in the future. That's wonderful. I definitely resonate with you about the first point you made there about sort of telling clients that they've won their asylum case or statelessness case. I had those very same feelings when I was at the IAS. As you, unfortunately, mm-hmm. I just didn't get to tell them enough people. I think I got <laughs> six cases <laughs> yes, in the whole right. six years that I was there or something. It, it, yeah, unfortunately, well, that was the system that we were working in. It was not a very yeah. a positive system. And and so I suppose equally the sort of antidote to that is, you know, you've had the highlights. What about any setbacks or challenges that you faced um, during your career? Yeah, well, I've mentioned a couple of them along the way. Um, having the pandemic um, hit was a challenge for me, but, uh, like so many others. And I consider myself to have been very privileged in the situation that I was in. But it was still quite stressful um, being placed on furlough and being in limbo and having my organization um be in limbo for months and months and not knowing what was going to happen with either my job or my life. (laughs) Um, So that was, that was quite a difficult time. Um, In, in addition to that, there were a few other times that were particularly challenging. Um, When I took time off with my children, um, I, that time was really precious for me and I'm, I don't regret it at all, but it was hard sometimes to when I was trying to get back to my career. And there were days when I wondered if it would actually happen at all and that I would be able to work in my profession. Um, but it did. And I, it, I, I think that's, you know, another point in favor of you've got to be patient and you've got to be persistent um, and, and you can make things happen. Um, and then another challenge for me a few times in my career has been um having to work with people that I didn't feel I could trust. And I think when I started out working in human rights and development, I I had this very um, idealistic perception that everybody working in our field would be wonderful people. And I'm sorry to say that they're not. Wow. Yeah, that's important for people <laughs> um, to know at this early stage, definitely. <laughs> yes, um, there are, don't get me wrong, yeah. there are some yeah. really, truly wonderful individuals working in the human rights field, mm-hmm. most of yeah. the people working in this field. Um, but there are some people who are in it for the wrong reasons or who have become damaged by their work mm-hmm. and um, have let that, the stress and mental health issues affect the people around them in really negative ways. And I have experienced that a couple of times and it was very unpleasant. Um, And it is important for people to think about that and, and develop ways of dealing with it. Mm -hmm. Thank you for sharing that. Those really sort of um, insightful moments about your, your own journey and your own career. Um, And it's something that we sort of mentioned a little bit before there, but the, the, the importance and sort of value of, of mentorship, um, of helping people along the way um, and walking with them as they go through their career, um, whether you've had that yourself and also, you know, what advice you can offer about finding a mentor, be it at the early stages, 
and then sort of going forward in, in your career? Yeah, mentorship is, is really important. And I think it usually benefits uh, both the mentor and the mentee. Mm-hmm. Um, I have men- mentored a few people in a, a limited way along the way, junior colleagues and um, volunteers. And it's always been quite rewarding for me to see them develop um, and kind of build their potential. It's really nice. Um, and I also have someone who is a mentor for me. She was a manager for me in one of my previous roles. And when she went into retirement, she offered to mentor me. And I was like, thank you. Mm-hmm. It's wonderful. It's exactly what I was mm-hmm. hoping for. Um, and it's it's incredibly helpful to have her um, to, if I apply for a job, she'll review a job application for me or talk through some tricky issues that might come up in a in an interview Um, and if I get rejected, then I can always call on her and she'll cheer me up. Um, so it's, it's really helpful to, to have a mentor, um, in terms of finding someone to mentor you, um, it can be hard, but it's definitely worth asking and, and you need to look around, um, with people in your university or with people in your place of employment and see, who might be open to that, um, who's really good at their jobs, what you like about their um, approach to the work, um, and then talk to them about whether they would be able and willing to to mentor you. And uh, again, I definitely think people should not be afraid to ask that. You know, all someone's going to do is say, no, I don't have the time um, if they don't. But often it can be, it can lead to a really rewarding relationship. Absolutely. I think if you sort of set those boundaries early about what that mentoring relationship will look like in terms of time frame mm-hmm. and, you know, how often will we meet, what's the nature of that. If you set that those uh, that sort of discussion early, then then everybody knows what's expected of the other or what each other can, can manage. So I think it's important, but totally agree with you on all of those points about the, the value of having mentors as we work in this sector. And it kind of comes nicely onto the sort of final set of questions which is around sort of the downsides, the challenges of self-care, the lifestyle, because we both know very well that working in this sector is very, very tough and it takes its toll on us both physically and emotionally. Um, we're working in challenging regions of the world um, and burnout and exhaustion are, are real issues for human rights professionals, I think coming more and more to the fore now as an issue. So again, you know, what advice can you offer those people who are just starting out thinking that it's the right sector for them about that and how best that they can take good care of themselves to do their work well as human rights professionals. Yeah, working in this field, <laughs> it, it can be incredibly stressful at times. Um, for me, some of the, the big stressors are it's really hard for me to see as someone that I've tried to help um, be denied protection that they should be granted. And, you know, if you lose an asylum case, um, it's tough. It's really hard for your client and for you. Um, I've also found it quite difficult at times to work for long periods with people who are suffering from mental illness, um, either as a result of the trauma they've experienced or just other mental illness. Um, it can be really incredibly frustrating and and difficult to work with people who are experiencing that themselves. Um, and it's 
so important to be aware of how this stress can impact us um, and guard against it in ourselves and in our colleagues. And we need to be aware of what the indicators are for our colleagues. And in one of my roles, um, I could see really quickly um, that several of my colleagues were suffering from work-related stress and vicarious trauma and really nothing was being done about it. And so I, I advocated really strongly for the organization to offer um, both training and um, a form of counseling or um, peer supervision so that people weren't trying to deal with that stress and trauma on their own um, mm-hmm. because that was what was happening. And it, you need to talk to other people about it. You can't deal with it all by yourself. It's really important to um, talk to colleagues um, and or mental health professionals so that you can cope with it in a healthy way. Um, it's also really important for me to not sacrifice your personal life over your career. Um I'm really dedicated to my work and I know most people in this field are as well. Um, But it's also really important to have friends, family, time to relax um, and take breaks and finding that right balance is, is hard sometimes. Um, But I think that it, it is so important, not just for us personally, but it makes us more resilient and better able to do our jobs if we have a healthy personal life. So um, I'm definitely in favor of um, prioritizing keeping your your personal life um, healthy and happy, um, as well as doing a really good job, because you can't mm-hmm. do the latter without the former. Absolutely. You know, you, you need to have that for sure, because this work can be so, so hard. And so it, it can grind you down very quickly, actually. So, mm-hmm. um, so we, we do need to take kind of good care of ourselves. So. Really, the, the, the last question is a sort of an invitation to you to, to offer any sort of final words or what I kind of ask, pearls of wisdom um, to our listeners, the sort of best piece of advice that you can offer to anyone who's listened to our conversation and thinks, yes, this is still what I want to do. I still want to work in the human <laughs> rights field. It's for me. Um, yeah. Well, what are the sort of final pearls of wisdom that you that you might offer? <laughs> I suppose my final advice would be to be persistent, but be flexible. Um, So if you have a dream and your dream is to work with a particular organization or on a particular issue, follow that dream to the best of your ability and also be open to the possibility that your work might take you places that you can't really imagine at the beginning. And that might be fine. And I kind of, I think about this a lot because my career has taken a very windy path and sometimes it feels like it's just meandering and getting a little bit lost, but other times it feels like it all comes together. And um, so I'm, I'm at peace with that and um, excited to find out what happens next. And I think it's really important to just have that flexibility and be open to um, things might not work out as you planned, but that might be fine. Absolutely. You know, I think that, that that is really a big lesson and I share it as well. You don't quite know what the universe is going to bring you, but you just have to be open to that and go with this sometimes and see. Yep. So if, if people want to sort of know more about you or, or find out more about you and your work, what's the best way that they can reach you? 
I, I am on LinkedIn. I think mm-hmm. I'm the only Cynthia Orchard on LinkedIn. Um, I'm quite happy that I have a unique name or relatively unique. <laughs> um, and I'm also on Twitter. Um, I'm at Cynthia Orchard. Wonderful. Cynthia, thank you so much. It's been just a pleasure to reconnect again. I mean, we've just reconnected very recently, actually, ourselves. But thank you for being so open to, to this conversation and sharing with me your, your own career history and your own career journey. Thank you, Vicky. It was really um, great to talk to you and I hope that it will help someone out there who's listening.